Hello and welcome to Raw Chatter. Today I have got a really interesting and thought-provoking episode for you. I am joined by the incredible Dr. Gretchen Holmes, who I met when I was out in America speaking at the Obesity and um, Diabetes Conference. It seems ages ago, but it's not that long ago. <laughs> Gretchen and I got into a conversation and recognised that we were both passionate about women being heard especially when it comes to their health. And so that is what we're going to be talking about. Gretchen has an incredible story uh, to share with you. So without me saying anything else, over to you, Gretchen. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you, Vicki. It's so great to see you. And, you know, one of the best parts about going to conferences is meeting all these new folks who you would have not normally had a chance to meet. So um, I, I'm just flattered and honored to be a part of the show. <laughs> Great so, to have you. Um, so, you know, my story starts, uh, gosh, 30 some years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. And during that time, it was at that time it was thyroid cancer and I unfortunately didn't do the typical treatment that you get done radioactive iodine treatment for a number of different reasons but one I couldn't get all my medical team to agree that that's what I needed to do which is very strange in retrospect but um, I so I had the surgery and I went on with my life and kept doing my follow-up uh, test, blood tests to make sure that the cancer was still gone. And I was doing my PhD at the University of Kentucky. And I woke up one day and I heard in my head a very loud, loud and clear voice that said, you need to go to the doctor. And I thought, huh, well, okay. So I had been going back and forth to New York, getting blood work done, seeing my doctor for follow-up. But I thought I can't keep affording to do that. I was a poor grad student. But so I called the cancer center at the University of Kentucky and they told me there was one physician who handled thyroid cancer. And I thought, oh, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? Because I was in New York City originally where you have opportunities to see anybody anywhere. And come to find out this physician was the one of the leading clinicians in thyroid cancer treatment. In the country. Wow. Yeah. And so I got in to see him and he took me off my medication as you typically do. And he did a whole bunch of scans. And then he told me my cancer had returned. And I said, how can that be? I've been doing all this follow-up blood work. Right. And he said, well, you don't respond to the blood work. You're never going to respond to the blood work. And by the time it did show up, it would have been probably too late. Wow. And I, yeah. And I, he said, there's a few people in the country that just don't respond. So when I finally had the nerve to ask him, I said, by the way, what stage am I? Because I didn't have any symptoms. Right. I mean, I was tired. But Can I just ask you the, the first time you got the diagnosis, did you clearly have symptoms? Yes, yeah. I did. So I had a, uh, a big lump at the base of my neck. Right. I started having trouble swallowing. Yeah. I was starting to sleep 
an insane amount of time. And I had recently lost almost 100 pounds. And I was gaining it back in record time. Wow. So and, yeah, lots of things that would indicate there was definitely a serious thyroid issue. But then this, this time, you've been doing your blood work. All seems to be normal. You've got no symptoms. Right. And then suddenly this guy is saying it's back. He, right. And wow. so the interesting thing about the first time is I went to student help and they said, yeah, there's, there's something going on there, but we think you should just eat more salt. Oh, God. Oh, well, that's an interesting <laughs> treatment, but okay. Yeah. So I said, no, I, I think I better go see somebody else. So mm -hmm. they sent me to a physician and she did an ultrasound and she said, sure enough, you know, there's a tumor there. But I'm a doctor and it's my job to determine whether or not someone is sick and you're not sick and we're just going to watch it. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, no, because I can't swallow and I'm feeling worse and worse. So I went to another physician who then did the fine needle biopsy, who did all the tests and, and it was all very inconclusive. But when we went, I had to have the surgery anyway, because it was clearly a, a, a tumor right. and they couldn't decide then either, but they sent it out for a slow grow. It came back and it was, yes, it was cancer. So I had to actually go have another surgery so that they removed the other side of my thyroid. So, so that is just an example then very early on of you sticking to your guns and saying, actually, I'm not accepting what you say. I'm not going to go away and increase my salt. I want to know more. Yeah, because we all know our bodies best. Right. Everybody That's key, isn't it? Best. And so if you're not getting the answers you feel you that are correct, we have to keep going. And in fact, there was one episode with that physician early on where I was getting ready to go in for surgery. I was, I mean, not that moment, but we'd already planned that I was going to have surgery and I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I was kind of overwhelmed as you tend to be anyway, because you weren't, because you're not feeling well. And I remember I was sitting in the uh, room and he was doing a, an exam and, and I was starting to cry, wow. which is unusual for me, but I, I was. And he literally looked at me and said, I can't help you. And he turned around and walked out the door, walked back into his office. And I was stunned. Wow. I mean, I, I rarely allow myself to be vulnerable, but I was. And he literally rejected me and I dried my tears and I went into his office as we always did to talk about next steps. Mm. He talked about his grandkids. I, I laughed at his jokes and then I left. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And people wonder why I, I had a real distrust of physicians moving forward, but that was certainly part of it. A prime example, yeah, and and this is what I think a lot of people listening can probably resonate with. You're just not getting the understanding, the empathy, what you need in those moments of vulnerability. He literally walked away. Wow. Yes, yes, and and completely shut me down. So I started to figure some things out. So when I went 
to see the other physician the second time when I was diagnosed, I was a little more assertive. I made sure that I spoke up and he uh, was outstanding. I mean, he was very patient oriented. He very patient centered. He, he took exceptionally good care of his patients. So it was a very different experience for me. And I found out that I was stage four, which shocked me because I didn't have any symptoms. But what it, what I found out was it had metastasized to my lungs. Crikey. Yeah. That's a heck of a thing to find out, isn't it? Yes. Luckily, my mom was there with me. Of course, you're, you're stunned when you find out you have cancer. And this was now the second time. And so he did a lot of extensive, very aggressive treatment. We weren't sure if it was going to work because when you take radioactive iodine treatment, it tends to settle in your neck. And I need, because that's where the residual tissue is. And I needed for it to go throughout my body so that it would take care of what was going on in my lungs. And luckily for me, it did. And I, but I was going through a PhD program at the time and which is an incredibly difficult time to be taken off your medication because you go into this mind fog and you can't hardly function. I couldn't drive and oof, it was a tough time. It was tough time. But But somehow you you managed to go through it and, and carry on. I did. I did. I had a lot of support. The interesting thing is that I did not tell my family I was stage four. Okay. Why not? I told them I had cancer, right? My mom was there. She knew, but I didn't want to bother them. And I never felt for some reason that I thought I was going to die. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to get treatment. You have to wait six months to find out if it worked or not. And if it didn't work, then I would tell them. But if it did work, then I wasn't going to bother them. Because one of the things that we don't talk about a lot, but when people go through very serious illness, another dynamic of that is having to look at the faces of your family and loved ones who you see are scared. And then you try to start mitigating that for them because you feel really bad. Right. it's it's a very hard dynamic and so i decided i didn't want a i didn't want them to be scared Uh, but i in the in retrospect i look back at that and i thought you know i really could have i probably should have told them so i could have them help me get through that because they were very present always always super supportive but i i made the choice and that's what i did and they were very mad at me And this is something that I think, again, people listening can resonate with because that is such a dilemma, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. your mind goes here and then here and it starts what ifing all over the place. And and as women, particularly, we don't want to bother other people in case, in case it's it's nothing to actually really worry about. And so we would rather hold on to it then pass that burden on but what we don't necessarily realize is that that in itself when we're holding on to stuff can create more of an internal response and Mm -hmm. holding on to that kind of of stuff can actually make things worse sometimes for you fortunately Mm -hmm. the treatment did work didn't it it did i had to have multiple treatments but it worked and i was cancer free uh, in 2003, when I graduated with, with my 
doctorate, I was, uh, I was cancer free, went on with my life. Life was good. Um, but I've always had a weight problem. Always. Um, I've always been either obese or morbidly obese. And you would think having cancer twice, having beat it the second time stage four, that I would start paying closer attention to my health. Yeah. And I tried multiple times, but I really didn't quite get it. It, it, I would do what everybody else does, which is just focus on the weight. That's right. it. Just focus on losing weight. And then I was not surprised when I would gain it back. I would always have a modicum of success, but I never quite got all of the pieces in alignment because every time I, I decided it was time because I felt bad and I didn't like how I looked and I couldn't participate in everything that I wanted to participate in, I would go on some kind of a diet and, and I'd lose some weight. But then, of course, I would be very angry at the world that I even had to do that. Yeah. And I would feel sorry for myself. And I would make sure if I was if I was being restrictive every and miserable, so was everybody else. They were going to be miserable with me. Right. The best way to approach this, I finally <laughs> figured out when I was 59. So this is something that people who are watching, obviously you can't see Gretchen if you are listening to this on a podcast, but you may be picturing somebody who is overweight. Gretchen is definitely not that. And trying to imagine you, I've seen the pictures because you shared them at the conference, of you being so much bigger. It is really difficult to actually imagine you being that size because I've only ever known you um, looking like this. But this is something again that so many women go through this i put weight on oh, i need to go on a diet i take it off now i'm miserable and i'm resentful and i'm missing out so guess what everybody around me needs to be <laughs> miserable with me and it's not sustainable is it and this is something that we get so suckered into because we believe that we need to do it this way because we don't know until maybe we're a bit older, we keep getting it wrong, but there is a better way. So what changed things for you then? So I was diagnosed with cancer for a third time. Wow. Yeah. This time it was endometrial cancer and stage one, but I ended up having to have a radical hysterectomy, which is often uh, the case. And that was in July, August of 2020. And in February of 2021, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was diagnosed diabetic. And that scared me more than any of the cancers ever did. Wow. Because I'd been watching my younger brother deal with diabetes for the last 10 years or so. And it was ravaging his body. He was already on dialysis he had already lost part of a leg he oh, was my baby brother and he was absolutely my heart and i knew what my future was wow so for you people listening to this were probably still trying to compute that you've got a cancer diagnosis for a third time but actually that wasn't the kind of the the kick if you like the real fear was the diabetes because you'd seen and experienced firsthand just yeah. how devastating to somebody's quality of life and to the family having to watch it could be wow so so what did you do what happened 
So I had talked with my brother uh, many times about it because I'd been pre-diabetic for years. And of course, that would have been an excellent time to take control of my health, make the appropriate changes. But I didn't, of course, because it wasn't emergent enough. Um, And so the night I found out that I was diabetic, I came home and I joined Weight Watchers. It was what I I felt comfortable doing. And I knew that I needed to be able to eat real food, that I didn't want to sit and eat something different than what my husband was eating or anybody else. And so that was the choice I made. But something really changed significantly for me that night. I realized a couple of things. One was that I still had time. As I was watching my brother and his health deteriorate, and he, again, six years younger than me, but I knew that he was, he was not going to get better. I knew that. Um, And that is, that was a harsh reality that was hard enough on its own. But I thought I I don't want my husband and my grandsons and my daughter to have to go through that because Eric was very uh, courageous and strong. And I just didn't feel I could be that strong to go through that. So I realized that I still had time to make changes that I wouldn't have to go through that. So I decided emphatically that I was going to approach this with gratitude and meant it. It wasn't something that I was just going to sit down and write a couple of things on a notepad every night. I was going to live with gratitude. And I learned as I started and was going through the program that mindset is almost all of it. Everything is filtered through your mindset. And so whether or not you're going to be successful and really, truly make the changes that you needed to make and I needed to make had to come from a place of gratitude. But I finally also figured out that I had a whole bunch of inside work to do. Right. The weight was the symptom. It, It That even wasn't even shouldn't have been the focus. It should have been. Why are you self-soothing with food? What's wrong? What it, what what happened? Now I knew a lot of what had happened. I grew up in an alcoholic home. I was a middle child. My older brother was a hemophiliac, so it was literally life and death situations in our house most of the time. And I didn't have anything going on. I was just kind of a normal kid, but, um, I was that I grew up with a lot of chaos and dysfunction and anxiety, a lot of love, but still, uh, an alcoholic home is a difficult, uh, anybody who is in a house where there's addiction, um, is a, is a very tough situation. And so I don't want to build a monument to it, but it is part of what But this is something that you later realize. And when you recognize that you've got this stuff and it sticks, we don't forget our childhood and it does have an effect, even though at the time it's just normal to us, whatever normal is, because we don't really know what that is. But but we all, and it doesn't matter what our background is like, we're all going to experience 
our childhood home life very differently to our siblings. And we all do different things to manage and to cope. And it's only when you can look back and you can kind of go, okay, now I can join up the dots. Now it sort of makes sense to me. But it took you to be able to, I think, step back and make that decision. And the catalyst was the fear of you not being able to cope with diabetes and, and end up like your brother. But what you shared there is really powerful. And I just want to highlight that a little bit more because you said that you needed to come at it from an attitude of, of gratitude. And to some people listening, they will get it immediately. To other people, they may be thinking, what does she mean? I don't understand. So what when you say that you came at it you made the decision to come at it from gratitude just to help people to understand what that meant and what did it look like for me it meant approaching the opportunity itself from a place of being grateful that i could take that i had the resources i had the time i had the money i had the opportunity to make the changes because i wasn't sick yet Right. Because I had not yet to start see seeing the uh, the impact of the disease. My eyesight was fine. I didn't have any issues with sores or ulcers. Uh, my kidneys were fine. All of the things that I had watched happen to my brother had not started to happen with me yet. Right. So I approached being able to shop for healthy food, being able to uh, create my lunches and be able to enjoy uh, all of this, this nutritious, delicious food from a place of, I can't believe I'm so lucky that I get to do this. And that completely changed my attitude from being angry and feeling sorry for myself to embracing it and just feeling joy from that versus uh all of the anger and everything else which once you're really angry and you start feeling sorry for yourself it, you, your time is limited you're not going to be able to sustain it so i knew that i had to build and it's so cliche we say it all the time but a healthy lifestyle but it finally clicked with me what does that mean i had been when i after i'd been diagnosed and treated for the third round of cancer, my oncologist said, we need to sit down and talk about what kind of cancer survivor you want to be. We've got to talk about your health. Right. And I thought, well, uh," and she said, I know you've been a cancer survivor for a long time, but what kind of cancer survivor do you want to be now? What a question. It was a great question. And I could even answer, to be honest with you, But, you know, the interesting thing about my third bout of cancer is I had been having significant symptoms for over five years. And every time I went to a primary care doc, and this was in multiple cities because I'd moved, we'd moved for my job numerous times. It was always attributed to my weight. Right. The symptoms on their own, if they had been for anybody else, they would have went, wow, we think there's something going on there. Let's let's do some exploring and, and try to, let's biopsy, let's do a, an ultrasound, let's, you know, check out, let's investigate. Yeah. But no, multiple doctors said, this is because you're obese. 
That's why you were bleeding so heavily. Now I was in my mid to late fifties and, and there's no reason I should have been doing that. I didn't, I kept asking physicians what's going on here. It really is worrying me. And they just would kind of pat me on my head and say, you need to lose weight. That's the answer for everything. And this is the maddening thing for, for both of us, isn't it? And for anybody listening who is overweight, obese, and you've been in that situation where it seems that the practitioner, the physician, the GP, whatever country you're in, is not actually listening to what you're saying because they are only focused on what they are seeing. And that is the overweight person in front of them. And this is something that you have experienced. And I wasn't particularly overweight, but I wasn't being heard either because of my age and the symptoms that I was having. You know, first it was a virus and then it was early menopause. And then it would you like some antidepressants? And I'm going you're not actually listening to what I'm telling you. Um, and I know from, from experience, if I had been a bit heavier than I was, there would have been no doubt that that would have come up with a suggestion to perhaps you should just lose, you know, a stone or 10 pounds and you'd feel better. Mm-hmm. So knowing that, how did it make you feel? Well, dismissed and and not heard and not seen. And I mean, you could go in for an earache and it would be tied to your weight. You could go in and say, you know, I think I'm getting bronchitis. I, you know, and they'd say, yeah, yeah, you do. And you need to lose weight. And so what happens after everything keeps getting tied to your weight is that you quit going to the doctor because they're not helping you. Mm. And so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, weight bias and on the part of of the healthcare world. And they uh, it's even been, you know, from research, we see that even those who are are dedicated and specializing in weight loss or uh, weight related issues, they, too, have a weight bias. It's as though they just cannot see past it. And what happens is, is that people die from that. I recently was talking with someone I had met where her daughter, who was in her 20s, who had a weight problem, they'd been trying to get her uh, healthy enough to have bariatric surgery. And so the focus was on weight loss, lose more weight, lose more weight. And she started complaining of stomach pain. And they went, oh, well, it's the weight. You got to lose the weight. Got to lose the weight. And finally, when they they couldn't ignore it anymore, they started to explore what was going on. And she was dead within months. Wow. Because they would not listen to her. And it happens all the time. I When I was doing my research for my dissertation, I was I did some focus groups. And... One of the participants said they had gone to the doctor uh, about something, and it was the older, middle-aged woman, right? Maybe yeah. in the 50s. Maybe. Yeah. And the doctor literally said to her, have you read this month's uh, Cosmo? Because every time there's an article about some health issue, every woman comes into my office and they have it. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. You know, so here's your pill for depression. Yeah. Because clearly it's emotional um, and you should go. So, you know, I am all about 
helping people find their voice and realizing that while sometimes we're limited in what our options are, I mean, maybe your health plan only allows you to see certain people or whatever, but we have a choice though. We either can go find somebody new or if, if we must stay within this health plan, we have to learn to speak up. And it's we have critical. to learn to say, you're not giving me what I need. You're not listening to me. And that goes back to what you actually did, not perhaps as assertively as, as, as the second time, but you said, no, I'm not listening to you. I need to get a second opinion. And sometimes you need to get a third, a fourth, a fifth, or however many until you feel that somebody is taking you seriously. Mm -hmm. And for women, that's a difficult thing to do because it, it almost goes back to what you said about not telling the family about your cancer because well, we don't want to bother anybody. I, I don't want to be a nuisance. I right. don't want to make them, you know, maybe blacklist me or put me down as an awkward patient or all of those things, reasons, excuses, whatever term you want to use, that stop us from actually doing what we need to do. And that's be our own advocates, isn't it? And this is something that you are really passionate about, isn't it? It really is because, you know, we, I'm in medical, graduate medical education. And so I work with new physicians. And so that means I work with physicians who have been practicing as well for a long time. And, right. and I hear, I have the conversations, I hear the conversations and it's not unusual to hear about difficult patients, right? What constitutes a difficult patient? Well, it's a non-compliant patient. So if they're telling you to lose weight and you're not losing weight, you're non-compliant and all oh, they they dread that. Um, and and I'm not anti-physician at all, not at all, but because in a lot of ways their hands are tied too. I mean, if we're not honest with them, if we don't tell them that that what's going on is is not working for us, if we are passive in our interactions. Well, that's not, that's, that's on us. We need to be more assertive. We can do it professionally. We don't have to uh, be obnoxious about it, but we do have to be more straightforward and, and not assume that everybody has our best interests at heart. We're the yeah, ones that want to take care of us more so than anybody will. And I think that's something that, you know, people don't like to hear it, but, but the truth is, your GP has got other reasons <laughs> that are not always in your best interests, especially we have a different system in the UK, but a lot of our GP practices now are where a number of GPs have come together to, to build like a bigger practice instead of just being single people. So it's a little bit more in line with what you have now in America, yeah. but we rarely get to see the same person. Um, mm. So you're kind of telling your story over and over again. We now have, and I know it's the same in America, we have something like eight minutes allotted per yeah. slot, you know, and what can you really find out and ask in right. that time? And then they say, well, you can only discuss one thing. So yeah. if you've got two issues, make two appointments. Well, good luck with that. If you can even get one here in the UK, you're lucky. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very much uh, an almost a lottery, isn't it? Yeah. as to as to who you get even in the US you said that you were very fortunate with the guy you and he ended up actually being a top surgeon and his care for you second time around was absolutely incredible yeah. but in comparison to the to the first experience chalk and cheese 
-hmm. And and this is where you realize that it's there's a postcode lottery and it's very much dependent on the person and their values and their ethics and how much their hands are being tied. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't stop us from speaking out, does it? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. And even I, who my my PhD is in health communication and my dissertation research was around provider patient communication, specifically doctor patient communication. So you think I, of all people, would be really adept at walking in and, and making sure my needs were met. But it took me a long time to get the confidence and my voice so that I could figure out how to communicate what was really important to me. And what that required was I had to give a lot of thought before I even went into my doctor's visit. And I, it wasn't unusual for me because it always caused me a lot of anxiety because it, it didn't always go as planned. And I would write down the types of things I wanted to say. I would rehearse in my head how I was going to say certain things so that at least I was as prepared as possible to speak up because it, it was not easy for me. But I did finally figure out that I had to be an equal partner with my physician and make sure that we were finding the common ground because what might be a priority for a healthcare providers, not necessarily what is important to you as a patient and somewhere we've got to find some common ground. And so, you know, I think that, you know, physicians are trained a certain way. Nurse practitioners are trained a certain way. And we as patients are not trained in any way to interact at all. No, we're not. So what, it's not a wonder that we're all over the place when we walk in there. Uh, and sometimes because we get overwhelmed when we start talking about medical situations and issues and they tend to use big words and we don't know what those mean. And and we we don't want to come across as stupid we okay. at all, right? So we don't, do you have any questions? Well, I have a thousand questions. Do I know how to even articulate one yet? No, I, I don't. So I think we have some work to do on our side to make sure that we are asking important questions, whether it's a financial consideration or whether it is uh, treatment or what does that mean for my quality of life? Because if you think about it, you know, what a healthcare provider might think is going to be a devastating impact to somebody for their quality of life isn't necessarily the same for the person because they may think, oh, it's just a, a you know, you just need a knee replacement. Well, okay, unless your, unless your, your job is, you're a welder and you have to spend most of your time on your knees or crawling around, right? And if you if that's going to end up being a problem, and that may take my my livelihood away. Right. Yes, so it's what, context, isn't it? It is. It's always context. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think when we're thinking about how we can help people, I think the takeaway from this that is something that you just shared, write down what you want to ask because I know that there are so many people that I've worked with who can't remember what the doctor said. Mm -hmm. And so I've asked them to ask if it's okay, can they record the conversation so that they can remember what they've been told? Because oftentimes, as you say, they use big words and you don't want to appear stupid or, or stop them in their kind of flow.
slow and to ask what the word means. So recording a conversation, most of us have phones now with that with that ability, but to also write down what are the things that are worrying you and what would you like to ask? And I think just those two things can be massively helpful because, you know, I've done it and I learned very young because I used to go to my mum to appointments and I would be like, why didn't you ask this? And why didn't you ask that? And she's just like, well, I was too flustered at the time. And I kind of learned from there that I need to go in and, and prompt and, and help her to ask the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've done it myself in the past where you come out and you go, oh, I needed to ask them that. And I should have said this. And why didn't I do that? But that's because in that moment, there is emotion involved. And we don't quite know what they're going to come out with. So there's only so much of a conversation that we can practice and, and rehearse because we're not sure what, what the other part of the conversation is going to be. Mm-hmm. You have shared your journey and, I mean, your your weight loss with Weight Watchers um, mm-hmm. has been very successful and you now easily maintain it. Mm-hmm. And you're writing a book, aren't you, Gretchen, yeah. to, to kind of share more about it so tell us more about how do you see food and weight now and and also tell us a bit more about your book oh thank you for asking yeah this has been quite an experience you know writing is I've always been an academic writer and and that has its own challenges but telling your your own story that is a whole nother level of difficult but um but I, I've been enjoying doing it. You know, my my weight loss was very successful. It was, I lost 110 pounds. I've kept it off now for well over a year and a half. I haven't, I have not um, gained any back. I, I go back and forth a couple of pounds, but uh, I do have, a, a I think, a pretty decent handle on it. Um, I still write down everything track everything I eat and make sure I keep myself um, in in alignment. But I, I will say um, my goal has always been to uh, learn how to eat so that it's absolutely delicious, um, never eating diet food. I mean, I eat salads and stuff, but I, I don't sit down with a carrot and a piece of celery and an, a boiled egg because to me that would not be enjoyable. So if somebody else loves that, more power to you. But that's not my idea of a, of a delicious anything. But um, so my whole process was that I would do what the program taught me how to do. But in the meantime, I was going to start working on why I ate like I ate. Yeah. What was, as they say, eating me that I felt I needed to self-soothe with soothe with food. So I started going to a therapist for the first time. And I started working with a, a life coach, a transformational coach. And everybody kept taking me back to my childhood to try to figure out some of the things that I was still needing to address that needed some healing that needed some celebrating or whatever it was. I mean, I, I started the podcast called the work in between. And I did that because I knew everybody loved a transformational story. Right. And I have a wonderful transformational story I have a really great before picture where I was, you know, a size 22, 24, 
and even better, I had no makeup on. And then I lost all this weight and I had my hair and makeup done. And I, I mean, the before and after is extraordinary. It really yeah, is yeah. very powerful. Yeah. But I, and I have said this time and time again, and I don't think they believe you, um, but it was the internal transformation that mattered the most to me because I had my entire life dealt with a lot of anxiety around food a lot so I was preoccupied with it I couldn't eat enough my brain never told me I was full I found out that was because I was addicted to sugar and I just wanted to be fed all the time no matter what just that's why I was never full um, and when I was younger, I didn't want to go spend the night at a friend's house. Cause I thought, what if there's not enough food? What if I need to eat later? And there's, I can't eat. I don't have any control over that. So I spent my entire life with a significant amount of anxiety around the, around food. That's and what, and which is, I, I don't think unusual, but within two weeks, that anxiety went away. And one day at dinner, my brain went, you know, you're full. And I thought, what? I, I had never, I had never heard that, never felt that. That connection had never happened before. Now, I would eat until I was stuffed, but my brain never told me I was full. And I still had food on my plate. And I thought that was the most extraordinary moment. And so for me, having the anxiety gone and the ability for my body to work in tandem, uh, that was that was worth it more than all the cute clothes. Yeah, yeah um, and that that is the difference. It's it's how you feel when you're eating and about food because. For anybody listening who is still struggling, whether it's, it's binge eating, whether it's anorexia, orthorexia, any of the disordered eating patterns, then there's loads of them out there. And I haven't mentioned them all, but it means that we're either in a state of anxiety or, or fear or a little bit of both around. Can I eat? Should I eat? Am I eating too much? What will other people think? I don't want to eat in front of other people. And will there be enough food? And I can't go there just in case. And our whole life revolves around that to the extent mm -hmm. that you don't really realize that you're missing out on really living at all mm -hmm. because it becomes becomes who you are doesn't it, it becomes an identity mm -hmm. and to recognize and it's quite scary because I can really identify with that not feeling full when I was little and I, and I couldn't understand it and it, it would be a running joke in our family if people left food on the plate I'll give it to Vicky she'll finish it yeah. You know, because I literally didn't have that full up switch until I was stuffed. And it was literally then, you know, my waistband was actually digging in yeah. to my belly. Uh, okay, then maybe there's no more room for any more. But I still mm -hmm. didn't know what full up meant. And, and again, coming out of the whole bulimia anorexia phase and tuning into actually, am I hungry? I, I didn't know. And mm -hmm. so, both both ends of the scale kind of lose you lose your ability and I had no clue then that I could ever get over that because it just becomes who you are mm -hmm. so when you do have that experience that you've just beautifully explained that suddenly this voice is going yeah you've had enough and it's okay to leave food and you don't mm -hmm. need to feel guilty 
that is kind of like uh, it's 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 like wow this is so new and amazing that you just want to embrace it don't you yeah it's freeing right it's empowering it is you know it's like you've spent your whole life so hyper focused on this one aspect of your life and all of a sudden now you have all this energy for other things and 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 your world really does open up for you i i think that you know for me it was not only really getting in touch with you know my emotions and my feelings and all that stuff but it was getting in touch with my body and I, I thought after a while, it's not a wonder my poor body was always starving because I was not feeding it the nutrients that it needed to do anything. I, I, I always thought, well, maybe it kept going. I'm going to keep telling you I'm hungry till you feed me something I can do something with, which, you know, I, I wasn't. But uh, it, it's, it has been a, definitely a renewal for me um, at this at this stage. Um and I had to, I got comfortable with being a little bit hungry, which was always uncomfortable for me, never starving. If I'm, if I'm truly hungry and I'm able to distinguish whether I'm hungry or I'm bored or I'm upset, then I eat something. I eat some lean protein or grab some fruit or whatever it is. And that, that has helped me become more in sync with actually how my body works and what it needs. And so that's been really helpful for me. And I, I've, I have maintained that, you know, I'm, I still come from a place of gratitude. I am really happy about how I feel. Uh, of course, it's fun to go shopping for really cute clothes. That's great though. My, I spend way too much money on that for sure. Um, but my confidence has changed, but not, because I've lost weight, sure, that's contributed. Of course it has. But it really is more about because I have dealt with a lot of issues that I needed to deal with. And so now I feel more empowered. I feel like I am transforming and finding my purpose. And I am really uh, finding my my true path of the things that I, I want to do. And so my book has, boy, is it taught a lot, um, taught me a lot because I realized that even though I've gone through a lot of challenging things, cancer, um, you know, obesity, alcoholism, um, you know, I've lost my mom, my dad, and both brothers now. So it's, it's just a lot. It's a lot, right? It's a lot. And I acknowledge that it is a lot, but I, I still approach life from a place of the best is yet to come. I feel sad. I miss my family desperately, but there is still light. There's still joy. I, I've learned about myself that I, I don't run from these things that I, I have a tendency to lean into them. I try to process them and I walk through them with a lot of help from a lot of people, trust me. But I still maintain that, you know, if you don't build a monument to all of these awful things, my mom always told me that don't build a monument to it. You can acknowledge it happened, but if you build a monument to it, then that defines you, you give it all your power. 
And so I feel very deeply, I grieve very deeply, but I love very deeply as well. And so I, I looking back and bringing up memories that I hadn't thought about in years, um, really helped me kind of celebrate that little girl who, even though she's dealing with all this stuff and as an adult, I still kept walking toward the light. And I realized because whenever I could experience joy and happiness, I really liked that feeling. And I know that that's what is always on the other side. Always. It's painful. It's horrible sometimes to have to go through it. But if you don't deal with it, if you don't process it, you're going to be stuck there. Yes. And the and you think that's all there is there. That there's never going, you're never going to laugh again. You're never going to feel joy again. And that's not true. And I have through practice and going through cancer and losing my family and doing, I, I found out that there, there is always some joy out there. And so the book has been good for me because it's helped me celebrate myself, not only as somebody who survives, but who has thrived in circumstances that were challenging. Are there people who have been through worse things than me? Absolutely. Um, but I, I absolutely, I'm honoring all of those things that, and experiences that have made me who I am. And I'm trying to help people understand that there is a way forward and, and you're going to be okay, but you got to lean in, which is the thing that's really hard. And that's the, uh, just a powerful message. Your mum was a, a wise lady not to build a monument to this stuff. And, and that's something I think that I'm going to, you know, remember that because it is so important. I think as women, we are more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. But also we're flipping stubborn when it comes <laughs> to asking for help. And you, you know, pointed out and highlighted there that you had a lot of help but mm -hmm. you needed to ask for it at times. It didn't yeah. come landing, flying towards you on a plate. Yeah. You have to be your own advocate. We have to start asking for what we want and what we need. And that, I think, gets a little bit easier as we get older yeah. because we realize that if you don't, nobody else is going to do it for you. Um, yeah. But also having the courage and, and the gotch and to have somebody like you as an inspiration to help people to realize that, it can be gotten through. And not only can you come through it, but you can actually thrive and be grateful mm -hmm. from the experience. So do you have a title for your book? And do you have any idea when it's coming out? I have multiple titles for this book that I cannot seem to settle on. But I think right now it's going to be based on my podcast, The Work In Between, Love it. because it's really what I have been doing um, all along. And so I started working with a writing consultant to help me get it across the finish line. You know, when you when you take things as far as you can take them, whether it is whatever you're dealing with or a project or whatever, you get to the point where you go, you know, I need help now. And it's a great empowering thing to do. I mean, I, I had my first session with her last week and I, I it was so empowering to me. I, I was very vulnerable when you're talking about your own stuff, but you know, I trusted her and continue to trust her to, uh, to uh, take 
care of me and that's what she's doing. But one thing, I, I hope it'll be ready for, um, to go to publish her publisher, like early uh, January, February-ish. I hope, I'm, I'm praying for that. But um, I wrote a section on strength that, because people ask me all the time, including my therapist, after I kind of gave her the, the Cliff's Note version of, of my life, she went, where did you get your strength? And I, I thought, I don't know. I, I didn't think there was another option. You just kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other and that's what you do. And it finally dawned on me probably six, eight months later that I got my strength from the people around me that even when I was the most vulnerable and the weakest and could not hold myself up, I have people who physically, mentally, emotionally hold me up. And so I didn't go through those things alone. Did I, some of that stuff you've got to do by yourself, but it doesn't mean you're going through them alone. Yeah. And I was very blessed, still am, whether people are with me physically now, or if it's my ancestors who rally around when they know I need them, because I still maintain it was my older brother who said, you better get to the doctor. He had passed years earlier. Right. Um, they're there. And we have to get out of our own way and quit being so stubborn and let people help us. You know, we feel so good when we can help other people. We feel we feel alive. We feel connected. And to deprive other people of that opportunity is uh, it's unfortunate because we all need people. We just do. None of us can do this by ourselves. That's a brilliant message to end on. I love that. We can't do it for ourselves, but we can remind ourselves that we are stronger than we think with their support. Tell people, just before we wrap up, where to find your podcast because um, I have tuned in. It is an amazing podcast. Um, so I'm going to put it in the show notes, but just to, just to let people know, where can they find it? Sure, you can find it wherever you listen to your podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, Podbean. You can also find it on my uh, website, www.gretchenholmesphd.com. And as soon as the book is, is getting ready to come out, I will have that. I will say that um, I have a, a publication, um, an article coming out in March in Best Holistic Life magazine, which is was a cool opportunity. I'm going to be on their podcast in the uh, in sometime next year, and of course, Vicky, you're going to be on mine next. And we're going to we're going to flip the the, the <laughs> narrative here, and I'm going to have you on my podcast. And I will say that this is one of the coolest things about being in the space is the opportunity to meet people like you and others who collectively were just trying to help each other and make and help other people achieve their their goals and feel good about themselves because we need more of that we definitely do and if people do want to connect with you do you hang out on social media as well just let people know the best place to connect with you personally yeah so i'm on linkedin which is the easiest way to get me and it's gretchen holmes h-o-l-m-e-s PhD. Uh, Norling is my maiden name. So I think it says Gretchen Perend 
Norling, N-O-R-L-I-N-G, Perrin Holmes. So that's the easy way or go onto my website. You can send me an email that way. There's a way to uh, send me a note. And I love it when people send me emails. It just makes my day when one pops up and I always respond. So, you know, thank you. Wonderful. And we will put all of those links and details in the show notes. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll find it in the description. So once again, thank you so much for joining me, Gretchen. You and I, no doubt, will meet again in person soon. I could speak to you all day long. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Good. But for now, we need to wrap things up. So, folks, I hope you have taken away some nuggets from today. I know I certainly have. Um, so just let me remind you that we only have one life, as far as we know, and one body. Please take care of it, because it is taking care of you. And until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening or watching.